I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 80 of the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, the peasant rabbi from Galilee and would-be Messiah, stands before the representative of Roman power and authority, Pontius Pilate, accused of sedition. With political intrigue and theater combining with ethnic and religious tensions, what can Jesus teach us about how to navigate our world in 2021? Uh, Guys, guess what? I am done with seminary. And I didn't drop out. I'm actually done. (laughs) I made it. Uh, If you guys are new and you're like, who cares? I've been talking about it for, you know, years, four years to be exact, off and on. So I'm done after four years of work and probably more money than I'll ever make in my lifetime. I've finished seminary and now I'm a master of something. I'm not quite sure what, but I guess I have the rest of my life to figure it out. I actually finished um, a few weeks ago. I had an interview exam with a professor to get credit for my final class, which was intro to seminary. Uh, thankfully, I was able to pass this exam after four years of seminary. Seems I've learned how to be a seminary student in these four years. Maybe that's what I mastered. At the same moment, I was doing this interview exam a few weeks back. What appears to be a Viking from the ninth century time-traveled into the future to our present time, recruited members of the hit TV show Duck Dynasty, and took over our government. And we said 2021 couldn't be worse than 2020. Yeah, uh, this happened. You know, sans uh, a time-traveling Viking. Uh, If you haven't heard somehow, a mob riled up and encouraged by the president, his inner circle, and those sympathetic to him, violently stormed an important building in the capital, occupying it for some time before they were eventually forced out. People died, dozens were injured, Government workers were stuck for hours hiding from the mob in locked rooms, hoping they wouldn't be found and terrified of what would happen if they were. It was a disturbing display of evil. While the mob itself was generally pro-Trump, the groups present in the mob were varied. There were neo-Nazis and white supremacists alongside pro-Trump Orthodox Jews. There was a heavy presence of the satanic cult QAnon, a group that claims to be fighting, ironically, a satanic cult of cannibalistic pedophiles. The crowd spanned generations, gender, and economic classes. Sprinkled throughout were current and former members of the military and police. And there were people present professing to be Christians people encouraged by their pastors or right-wing evangelical personalities, either implicitly or explicitly, to travel across the country to Washington, D.C. to participate. Prayers and incantations were recited by the mob, claiming and most assuredly blaspheming the name of Jesus as they violently occupied the building. And people noticed Christians and non-Christians noticed the symbols, imagery, and the Bible stories that were used in the months leading up to this moment and now in the moment itself to encourage and, in part, drive this sort of evil. 
In the aftermath, discussions were had, podcasts were recorded, articles were written about this thing called uh, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, if you're not familiar with it, is a political ideology that snatches what it sees as useful bits of Christianity to form a narrative about America as a Christian nation and one that must be taken back from the fill in the blank enemy for God. There's been numerous iterations of this throughout the decades, both on the political right and the political left. This is just the latest one to catch our attention. Christian nationalism, nationalism is uh, particularly nefarious for the church in, in America, both because it finds safe haven in uh, most American churches valuing you know, a form of patriotism, and because adherence to Christian nationalism and those who are sympathetic for it are statistically a large part of the American church. And for a lot of sincere followers of Jesus, it has brought shame by association, since both groups, uh, you know, Christian nationalists and followers of Jesus use some of the same symbols, like the cross, uh, they use this, the name of Jesus, and, and draw stories found in the, the scriptures. I know I've felt it keenly in the aftermath. I have uh, quite a few family members and friends who do not follow Jesus, and they don't necessarily automatically understand there's a deep, fundamental difference between me and a mob using Christian symbols, except that at least I don't participate in said mob. To someone who doesn't follow Jesus, a Christian and a Christian nationalist can be a very difficult thing to distinguish on the surface. This teaching, however, it is not about Christian nationalism, don't worry, and our church's stance on politics. We actually did a series on a theology of politics leading up to the election back in November. Uh, it's entitled, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not. If you haven't uh, heard it, sorry. My mask is messing with my microphone. Thank you. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen. Uh, Josh did an excellent job, and I'm very proud and thankful that our church subscribes to the teachings of Jesus over political expediency and power. But I will bring this Christian nationalism stuff, or I bring all of this up because this scene with Jesus on trial before Pilate is an excellent contrast to what we witnessed a few weeks ago. You guys ready to dive in? Cool. Okay, yeah, let me pray really fast before we do. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through your scriptures? Would you kind of focus our minds and our hearts on you? Help us to be willing to accept and receive from you tonight. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, look down at verse 11. And let's read it together. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Okay, so quick recap. Things are getting uh, ugly quickly. Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish authorities with one of his inner circle, Judas, acting as an informant. 
Jesus' disciples have scattered, and Jesus was forced to stand before part of the governing body of Israel as a victim of an illegal trial in front of a leadership that had already decided to find him guilty. During the trial, Jesus' lead disciple publicly disowned him to a crowd. The early informant, Judas, whom Jesus sincerely loved and cared about, has found an unsympathetic audience in the religious leaders as he repented for betraying Jesus. And given over to despair, Judas has decided to end his life. Now, Jesus, after being found guilty of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders, is hauled before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. In tonight's text, Pilate seems to be unimpressed with Jesus. His question to Jesus seems to emphasize the you, as in, are you the king of the Jews? And this question about the king, being the king of the Jews is a question intended to ascertain whether Jesus is a revolutionary uh, figure guilty of the political charge of sedition against Rome and its emperor Tiberius and his appointed officials. And sedition was a capital offense. Jesus' response to the charge of sedition and the threat of execution is muted and ambiguous. You have said so. He said almost the exact same thing to the Sanhedrin as they illegally tried him and found him guilty of blasphemy. It's a way that Jesus is not exactly affirming Pilate's question, but also not exactly denying it either. It's akin to him saying something like, that's one way to put it. Now, uh, we have some space tonight to try to explore the people involved in this court scene and the context. It'll help us tonight and also for the next week as the court scene continues to unfold. So let's kind of dive into this. On the surface, this moment between Jesus and Pilate appears something like this. A popular peasant rabbi from the poor rural region of Galilee with the very common name of Yeshua on trial before the representative of Roman authority, Pontius Pilate, who himself is not a very noteworthy figure. Pilate was assigned by Emperor Tiberius to oversee the Roman province of Judea, where Jerusalem was located. It was not a prestigious assignment, and yet it was quite difficult. Generally speaking, the Jewish people resented Roman rule and taxation and presence in Judea. They resented Rome's attempts to, quote-unquote, modernize and civilize the Jewish culture and religion. And they were no strangers to violent uprisings against Roman rulers and soldiers. Pilate's job, with his detachment of 500 to 1,000 Roman soldiers acting as a police force, was to keep the peace collect taxes, act as judge in legal disputes, and choose the high priest who resided over the Sanhedrin. In other words, Pontius Pilate had the distinguished honor of being the IRS chief of police and the Supreme Court who had the power over the Jewish religious establishment. Suffice it to say, he wasn't winning any popularity contests in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate was a mid-level bureaucrat managing an unimportant but annoyingly difficult region in the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. 
This is what we see on the surface, a peasant rabbi and a mid-level bureaucrat. But there's way more going on in this meeting between Jesus and Pilate, and it's the reason Jesus cannot honestly deny being the king of the Jews. God cares about politics, but not in a partisan kind of way, as in, you know, the Jesus 2020 sign in the midst of the mob at the Capitol, or, you know, the idea of, like, vote Democrat, or that you're the scum of the earth. When you read the story of the scriptures cover to cover, you begin to pick, on, pick up on the fact that God is not a fan of empire. As usual, N.T. Wright says it well when he writes, the entire story of Israel, on one level at least, is the story of how Israel's God is taking on the arrogant tyrants of the world, overthrowing their power and rescuing his people from under its cruel weight. So give me a couple minutes to do a broad overview of this through the scriptures. It involves me saying stuff about history, which is exciting to me and to others of you in the room, but do your best to keep up because it's actually helpful stuff. Okay, so God's original intent from Genesis 1 onward is to have a kingdom on earth overseen and cared for by its image bearers, humans, with the presence of the Hebrew word shalom, which is like a peaceful thriving and flourishing. But it goes wrong. Humans grasp for their own autonomy and authority in partnership with rebellious spiritual beings, and things go very wrong. Soon enough, powerful city-states and nations rise as places of evil and injustice. The Tower of Babel is the proto-Babylonian city in rebellion against God. Then comes Egypt, ruthlessly enslaving God's people, attempting ethnic cleansing when they become too numerous. That's two empires in the first book and a half of the Bible. And after Israel is rescued by God from Egypt, they become their own nation, Eventually, the regional superpower Assyria, who dominated off and on for 300 years, which is longer than the U.S. has existed, captured and deported the northern half of God's people. Most people are unfamiliar with Assyria, but the story of Jonah happens in the context of Assyria. Nineveh is one of the capital cities of the empire, who was proudly known for its barbaric brutality against its enemies. There's a good reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. The relatively short-lived Babylonian Empire comes afterward, helps defeat Assyria, and then conquers the rest of God's people, destroying Jerusalem and the temple and exiling many of its people. The Persian Empire then goes on to defeat Babylon and are a mixed bag, allowing some of the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, but Persia is still a pagan empire ruling over God's people, which is not ideal. Through the prophets, God critiques each of those empires for their evil, injustice, and violence. And as each empire falls, it's often seen as God's justice against the injustice perpetuated by said empires. And so we come to Jesus before Pilate. God's Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, not Tiberius. The Messiah who would usher in God's kingdom of peaceful flourishing, not the peace and prosperity brought at the edge of a Roman sword. 
But all Pilate sees is a peasant rabbi from Galilee. Are you the king of the Jews? Look down at verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? After Jesus gives Pilate a non-answer, it's the religious leaders' uh, turn to have their, uh, to, or to level their accusations at Jesus. They would have known that a charge of blasphemy was meaningless to Pilate. Pilate had no interest in being the judge over Jewish religious disputes. He was concerned primarily with Roman law and power. The religious leaders needed his approval for execution though, so their legal strategy would have been to prove Jesus was guilty of sedition. Jesus is standing trial caught between various groups vying for power and control. And while the text is pretty straightforward, the relationship between the groups at the trial is anything but straightforward. I said earlier that generally the Jewish people resented Rome's rule. And while that's true, how people responded to Roman rule varied greatly. Some sought violent insurrection, some prayed and waited for God's Messiah, some tried to purify the people's observance to Torah law, and some begrudgingly saw opportunity. The head of the religious leaders was the chief priest Caiaphas. It was his residence where Jesus was illegally tried by part of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas ended up being high priest for around 18 years. Typically, high priest would last only a year or two. And this reveals something about Caiaphas. Do you remember who I said got to pick the high priest? Hint, it's Caesar's representative, the ruling governor of Judea. It's Pontius Pilate. Pilate had the authority to remove Caiaphas and choose someone different. He didn't. In fact, Pilate kept Caiaphas for his entire run as governor of Judea. And this was not typical. It seems Pilate and Caiaphas were allies to some degree, probably uncomfortably so, but there was enough common ground that Pilate kept Caiaphas in power. Remember, Pilate's most pressing concern was peace and taxes. If he failed at those, then he would be removed by the emperor Tiberius. If Caiaphas could help with one or both of those things, then he was useful. And as much as we know about Caiaphas, he seemed to have been cozy with the rich and powerful of Jerusalem, the people who were doing quite well for themselves under Roman rule. He seems not to have been a fan of violent insurrection against Rome, which Pilate would have regarded positively. To remain in power, Caiaphas had to balance Rome's desires the desires of his fellow members of the Sanhedrin who had differing schools of thought, something akin to the Democrats and Republicans, and he had to balance the desires of the public as well. And from his long tenure as high priest, he seems to have been a very shrewd person, successfully balancing all of these groups. Where Pilate sees an unimpressive or unimpressive poor peasant rabbi from Galilee, Caiaphas sees a popular teacher that has unsparingly criticized and undermined his and the Sanhedrin's religious authority, all the while winning a noteworthy amount of public support. 
Jesus is a threat to the power of the religious elite and the position of power Caiaphas has maintained. If only they could convince Rome he was a threat as well. But if he couldn't convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat, Caiaphas could motivate Pilate to see it his way by threatening to take away the peace in Jerusalem. Jesus is caught in a political web, a religious and ethnic pressure cooker as he stands before Pilate. And in verse 14, Matthew writes, but Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus is done speaking. The last words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel before his death cry on the cross are his words to Pilate, you have said so. And Pilate is amazed by Jesus' silence. The Greek word implying that Pilate was somewhat impressed by him. It also could have convinced Pilate that Jesus was no threat to Rome. If Jesus would not fight these charges, would he really be capable of leading an insurrection against Rome? In Pilate's estimation, probably not. But why not say anything? Why doesn't Jesus correct the accusations of the religious leaders, even if it's hopeless? At least he could publicly prove himself as an innocent man before his unjust execution. Or he could at least publicly claim to be the Messiah, like a, a last word of evangelism before his execution. Doesn't Jesus care about truth and justice? Well, as we've studied Matthew, we've repeatedly ran into the reality that Jesus was often misunderstood, even by his closest disciples. If Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, the general expectation was that he would come as a teacher and a conquering general king, overthrowing Roman oppression and establishing Israel as an independent nation and ground zero for God's global kingdom. People drew this from the imagery in the scriptures that said what the Messiah was to be like. Psalm 2 is one of those. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. This is an idea of Rome rebelling against Yahweh and then God speaking to his Messiah. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. See, the Messiah is supposed to be victorious and dash the pagan rebellious nations like Rome to pieces. But Jesus isn't saying anything. He's trending towards being dashed to pieces by Rome, not doing any dashing himself. And on the surface, Jesus is a failing Messiah. The religious leaders and experts in the scriptures have deemed him a blasphemer, an imposter. Before the authority and power of Rome in Judea, Jesus has no army to lead. He doesn't even have an answer to give. Ironically, Pilate regards him as harmless because he doesn't see him as a king. 
or even a leader of a violent insurrection, let alone God's anointed king ushering in a kingdom that will take over Rome and the world. Scholar Stanley Hauerwas notes this, Pilate's inability to understand the politics of Jesus does not mean that Jesus is any less a threat to Rome. Rather, it means that the politics that Jesus represents is a more radical threat to Rome than Rome is capable of recognizing. Jesus's silence is intentional. It is his answer to the charges and political intrigue and theater happening. Psalm 2 is a part of the messianic collage, but only one part. Jesus is embodying the messianic image of the suffering servant, the very role that will subvert Rome and the power of the Sanhedrin as God's kingdom is inaugurated through the apparent defeat of Israel's Messiah and the King of the Jews. Let me read to you what the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years prior to this trial. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now speaking of the Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet... He did not open his mouth. Sound familiar? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? Certainly not the religious leaders. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, through Yah- and though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the text that undoubtedly shaped Jesus' imagination and understanding of what was taking place. He knew how this would turn out, but he also knew why he was doing it. And he he did it willingly, partnering with the Father to take on sin and death. In the silence of Jesus is found his determination to save you and I.
when I see things like Jesus being used as a symbol of Christian nationalism, it, it grieves me deeply. Um, I feel the pang of shame by association to groups and movements like that. But it's also pretty easy to open the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus and see stories like the one we're reading tonight and say, that does not look like King Jesus or his kingdom. It must be something else. And whether people in our society do or do not recognize or acknowledge that does not make it any less true. Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is breaking in right now and will one day be brought in by our king in totality. And this is true whether there is political chaos and evil or not, or chaos and evil that we are personally experiencing. The appearance of a situation does not always reveal what is truly happening. On the surface, you have Jesus, the poor peasant rabbi from Galilee, caught in a web of political power. In reality, Jesus, the king of the universe, willingly is willingly going to his death to give life, forgiveness, and citizenship in God's good and healing kingdom. Jesus is king. It's not a platitude, so don't think of it as one. It's a theological declaration of hope in a messed up, dark, evil world. It is hope in the active presence of Jesus in the here and now working to push back darkness. I see that in my own life. Um, I've shared with all of you a number of times about my own childhood, poverty and abusive dad, the fear of becoming my dad. Uh, statistically speaking, how my life has turned out is an anomaly. I have stable employment, a stable home, and a thriving family. And even though I've had my part to play, I can't and do not want to take credit for my life. I see instead the profound, tangible mercy, grace, kindness, and patience and love of Jesus. Pushing back evil and darkness and bringing good out of it. Jesus is king. But I'm keenly aware, as I'm sure you are as well, of situations that don't have a seemingly happy resolution. People die. Careers come to a sudden end. Marriages end or never materialize in the first place. Um, friendships are damaged beyond repair. I have a friend who lost twins. Brutal, gut-wrenching, unfathomable. Jesus has been merciful and gracious and kind and patient with him and with his family through it all. Jesus is king. But that doesn't mean he gets to see his kids run around or laugh and grow up. But since Jesus is king, there is hope and assurance that this loss will be undone, healed, and made whole. 
This isn't wishful thinking or a desperate fantasy utilized as a coping mechanism. This is the promise of Jesus the King of what his kingdom will usher in. The undoing of evil and the renewal of all things. Appearances can be deceiving. They always tell an incomplete story. It's because God is always at work, moving and working towards redemption and renewal, even when there are things that are happening that are outside of his will. Even right now, in this moment, wherever you are at, whatever your life is, whether you feel it or not, God is at work. Now, before we worship Jesus by praying and meditating through music, I want to draw a couple more things out of tonight's text. Uh, Jesus is no stranger to public humiliation. He has been abandoned by his closest friends. The religious elite have leveled the charge of blasphemy, rejecting him as a contemptuous liar against God. He is now being examined by a somewhat disinterested Roman official who believes he's a nobody. And all of this is happening publicly. When we see Jesus' name dragged through the mud, when he's regarded as a politically expedient symbol and used for people's own purposes and desires and power, when, as a result of this stuff, people don't want to associate with Jesus or look down on those who do associate with him, just stop for a moment and take a breath. Jesus has been in situations like this before. He can handle it. In fact, large parts of the New Testament, whole letters, in fact, are written to reassure Christians who have been shamed and publicly humiliated for following Jesus. Sometimes for misunderstandings, like the early misconceptions by Roman society that Christians were cannibals based on the symbols of body and blood in communion. But oftentimes Christians were shamed and publicly humiliated because the way of Jesus clashed with Roman society, societal values and norms. Christians would not participate in the cultural practice of national cohesion through the worship of the Roman emperor. And people noticed. This picture, it's actually one of my favorite, favorite from archaeology, if we have it. If we don't, that's my bad. I totally messed up the slides. So, Kaylee, I'm so sorry. Um, but there's this picture of, uh, from archaeology of the second or third century political cartoon. And it's really crude and like stick figure-y, but, but we have it saved. And it reads... Alex Zemanos worships his God. And it's this picture of a stick figure kind of man on a cross with a donkey head. Derision and scorn for the way of Jesus is not new. The New Testament authors essentially instructed Christians who are facing public shame and humiliation in this manner. God, are, God honors and values your faithfulness to him, even if your neighbors and community think less of you because of it. Make sure you stop sinning in ways that give good reason for those who don't follow Jesus to think less of you, and don't be unfaithful to Jesus just to fit in with them. 
Live in faithfulness to Jesus with the assurance that God sees it, values it, and will vindicate you. I say all this to put into perspective Jesus' silence in contrast to our, culture, our culture's emphasis on sharing your opinion on stuff, especially in a somewhat public space like social media. There's a cultural pressure to speak publicly via your platform, and when you experience shame by association, you are psychologically wired to distance yourself from the association causing shame. It's the knee-jerk reaction and urge that I've seen in many Christians, particularly millennials, and certainly in myself as well, to distance oneself from those you regard as bad Christians. The homophobic and transphobic Christians, the racist Christians, the nationalist Christians. It's that urge that says, I'm not like them. That's shame by association. And our natural reaction is to speak in order to distance ourselves from those associations. But the New Testament takes a different approach to public shame. The command isn't to argue or shout to the crowds in the marketplace your beliefs and why you're not so bad. It's to live a faithful life to Jesus. Peter, the one who succumbed to the fear and shame of being associated to Jesus and, didn't, and denied him three times, wrote this a couple of decades after, the events, or after that event to a bunch of followers of Jesus feeling the pressure of public humiliation. He wrote, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. To translate Peter's encouragement for us, live lives that treat LGBTQ people with dignity and love as fellow image bearers. Live lives that value and respect people of color and stand against injustice that they face. Live lives of nonviolence and enemy love. In other words, be silent and let your life do the talking. That's the paradigm the New Testament teaches about how to respond to shame by association. Now, there are times to use our voices and our words, particularly in response to injustice against the marginalized and those least valued and protected, or when inviting people to follow Jesus, or in the context of a relationship when people you know ask you about what you believe. But when it comes to public shame, the paradigm of silence is embodied by our King, Jesus. About Jesus' silence, Stanley Hauerwas writes, Jesus' silence about, uh, before Pilate is the silence of the church whenever it is faithful to the witness of Jesus before those who attempt us to confuse order with peace. Jesus' silence before Pilate is the silence necessary to unmask the pretensions of those who would have us believe that the violence they call justice is the only alternative we have to chaos. Jesus submits to Pilate, but his submission cannot help but subvert Pilate's authority. Such is the power of truthful silence. Since Jesus is king, there is power in silence. 
Silence that frees us to focus on living faithfully to Jesus. Silence that puts forward our lives being transformed by the Spirit of God rather than cheap words. Silence that draws us into entrusting the outcomes of our lives to Jesus, trusting that he is at work even if we don't see it. And maybe this is pretty much how you operate already. If so, keep it up. Shrug off the cultural pressure to be active on a public uh, platform like social media. Or perhaps you're feeling the temptation to jump into public conversations happening, to stand up for yourself and other sincere followers of Jesus. Or maybe it's the guilt that you haven't yet and that you should. Rest assured, the New Testament teaches otherwise. Maybe you participate in public conversations on social media about politics and Christianity, working to defend the faith and reputation of Christians against misconceptions and mischaracterizations. Drawing from Jesus and the New Testament, my encouragement to you is to spend your time, energy, and focus on other things. Use it as more time to draw near to God through spiritual disciplines. Look for ways to actively participate in justice causes throughout our city. Again, there's time to use your words. Pushing back shame by association is generally not one of those times. So let's put down the phones, close the laptops, step back from any public platform we have, big or small, turn away from the 24 hours news cycle and get on with living faithfully to Jesus trusting that he is king, actively at work in our lives and in our world. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church give.